Well, we continue to be in a series on the Gospel of Luke, and this week we come to chapter 5 and the well-known miracle of the healing of a paralytic, which, as we will see, clearly involves this man's body, but also his heart and his mind and his soul. So again, we are in chapter 5, Gospel of Luke. We're going to pick it up with verse 17. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Well, this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again in prayer to him. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this time together we have to meditate and to ponder your word. And though I think it's safe to say none of us have seen such a miracle, still we believe and we enjoy faith that you have given to us through your Son and the power of the Spirit. In that same regard, we pray that your Son would be amongst us now through that same Spirit, that we might have eyes to see and ears to hear and feet that will follow you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, up to this point in the Gospel, after his temptation in the wilderness, here's what we've seen with Jesus. It's important and it's good to kind of backtrack and see what's led to this moment. Well, Jesus had initially started his ministry in Galilee. He came to his hometown of Nazareth, and he proclaimed that the promised year of Jubilee was fulfilled in him. And Paul talks about the same thing in terms of new creation. Jesus was in turn rejected by his hometown uh, in the synagogue, to which he warned them uh, that they would be judged by God for rejecting him, and the gospel would go to the Gentiles something that ultimately happened after the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, much like we've seen with Jonah and Nineveh. And in response, well, after he said pretty harsh things to them, they tried to kill him. Not long after that, on another Sabbath day, Jesus healed a man possessed by a demon who was in the synagogue, and presumably he went unnoticed during their worship, And that demon confessed that Jesus is the Holy One of Israel. Immediately after that, Jesus left synagogue same day and went into Simon Peter's home. He rebuked uh, Peter's mother-in-law's fever, and Jesus, of course, also rebuked 
the demon just before that, and the fever immediately left Peter's mother-in-law. And I failed to mention this at the time, but it's important to notice that there was no recovery time. No recovery time for Peter's mother-in-law. Jesus rebuked the fever, and she was instantly well. In chapter 5, Jesus, we find him still preaching and teaching, and he called his first disciples through a miraculous catch of fish that revealed to Peter, among others, that, that Jesus is the Holy One of Israel, something a demon had recognized earlier. And while it is unclear how much Peter actually understood at this point about Jesus, what is clear is that Peter recognized Jesus' holiness, and he confessed his sin to him, and Jesus forgave him. And this, as we will see, is something only God can do. Now, as an aside, sometimes the forgiveness of sins in the Gospels looks like what we see in our passage today, where Jesus outright says, your sins are forgiven. Sometimes it looks like healing or exorcism, even as healings and exorcisms aren't necessarily that. Sometimes they are. But sometimes it looks like what happened with Peter, as in he's, he confesses his sin, and then he's given a job to do in God's kingdom. And in turn, Peter and the disciples left everything to follow Jesus. Jesus gives him this vocation because he's forgiven. And this, of course, anticipates uh, the life of the disciples at the end of the gospel and into the book of Acts after Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven. Remember, Jesus, I mean, Peter denied Jesus three times, right? At, at, at the key moment, and, and Jesus restores him and then says, feed my sheep. That's already anticipated in what we saw uh, a couple of weeks ago. And last week, we considered Jesus' healing of a leper and again, something, it's something only God can do. If you remember, priests could only evaluate and say, yes, I think you are, you are now clean. Jesus actually cleanses the leper, which is yet another example of how the forgiveness of sins and the healing of the body go together in the gospel. Well, verse 17 tells us that on one of those days as he was teaching, and presumably, presumably this is yet again, another Sabbath day, that Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, that is, in the synagogue, who would come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. So, last week we saw in verse 15 that even more the report about Jesus went abroad, and we can see now what, what Luke meant by that. Pharisees and scribes or uh, um, as scribes were sometimes called teachers of the law, they were coming to see Jesus from all over Galilee, so that entire region, but also from the south, in particular from Jerusalem, the center of Jewish religious nationalism, really the heart of Judaism. So this is similar to what happened with John the Baptist during his ministry. He started to attract the attention of of the so-called gatekeepers. So, so besides his hometown rejecting him, this is the first time that Jesus' opponents, again, these are the so-called gatekeepers of Israel, some of which were appointed that for that position, some took it upon themselves to be that. Uh, they are mentioned for the first time here in Luke. And during his ministry in Galilee, like what we see here, it's actually most often the Pharisees and the scribes that oppose him that oppose Jesus. 
The Pharisees were mostly a layman, uh, grassroots, conservative movement that operated mostly outside of uh, Jerusalem. And the scribes were experts and teachers in the law, which included uh, the oral traditions that interpreted the law. So during his ministry on the way to Jerusalem, so different from this, on his way to Jerusalem, and then specifically in Jerusalem itself and at the temple, the Pharisees don't show up. They, they, they don't show up, but the scribes do. In fact, the scribes oppose Jesus in all three phases of his, his public ministry, and they make common cause with the chief priests, which would have been really the elite uh, families who ruled the temple, as well as the elders or rulers of Israel. So you could think more like the tribal heads of, a, of an area or something like that. And in turn, scribes can also be found on the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish Supreme Court. Now, I'm not gonna, I don't wanna belabor anymore what I've just said about all that, but because all of this stuff can, I know, can become quickly confusing because I haven't mentioned the Essenes or the Sadducees or some of these other groups either, but, but Pharisees and scribes, just so you know, to be clear in our passage, they're not the same thing. They're not the same thing. A scribe might be a Pharisee, but Pharisees and scribes were distinct groups. And scribes were, by, by definition, highly educated men, even as no such training was required to be a Pharisee. Even so, the leaders of the Pharisees were scribes, which makes sense because they were educated elite. I mean, just think Paul, an incredibly educated man. And, the, and these same Pharisaic scribes showed up on the Sanhedrin, too. And again, that's the Jewish Supreme Court that tried Jesus. So in short, we have two distinct groups that do have some overlap that are making common cause in their investigation of what Jesus was doing and teaching. And we know they were judging Jesus by their demeanor. They were sitting while Jesus taught. Now remember, the typical demeanor between teachers and students was that the teacher sat to speak and students stood to listen, and that applied in the synagogue as well. But here the Pharisees and scribes, they also sit while Jesus taught, which means they saw themselves as authorities and reserved the right to make judgment on what Jesus was doing. It's like the difference between when I preach to you and when I preach at Presbytery, which is a gathering of pastors and elders. I'm never nervous on a Sunday morning but I am nervous when I preach at Presbytery. And, and the reason is simple. I know whether they intend to or not, and I don't think they are intentionally doing this, I'm being judged. I'm being judged by fellow practitioners. I'm being judged by fellow pastors about what I preach and how my demeanor is and all that stuff. And of course, I'm nervous because I want to measure up because I'm like every other human, right? So the presence of these two groups of Pharisees and scribes would have been instantly noticed in the synagogue and their demeanor signaled their intentions. So right from the start before Jesus says a word to the paralytic, really before he starts a word of preaching, confrontation is at hand. Well, Luke says, with the power of the Lord being with him to heal, 
and something we've, we've seen now throughout Luke's accounts to this point. Luke tells us that some men were seeking to bring their paralyzed friend on a bed, or really we should think of that as a pallet, uh, and put him before Jesus. When they were unsuccessful in bringing him into the synagogue, they went on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst of the synagogue before Jesus. So <laughs> clearly this is an over-the-top moment. So it's, it's fair to speculate that the synagogue itself was jam-packed and overflowing with people such that these men probably could not get near the door. And even if they could, uh, people were not letting them pass. It's also fair to assume that with the report about Jesus spreading throughout really all of Israel, there were many people who were sick or suffering and waiting to see him. So you can almost imagine them like, hey, buddy, get in line. We're all sick and hurting here. So these men take to the roof, hauling their friend up with them, removing a section of the roof, which in itself would have been completely disrupting uh, of, of the meeting. And, and they lowered him and his pallet to Jesus. And what Luke highlights is not so much the audacity of these men. And I have to imagine, you know, this took more than a few minutes to accomplish, but that these men, they really wanted to get their friend before Jesus. And Luke repeats that phrase uh, twice in here because it's Jesus' presence that matters. That, that phrase, before Jesus. They wanted him before Jesus. It's Jesus' presence that matters. You see, heaven has come near to us in him. And in him, God is with us. He's Emmanuel. And last week we discussed how with the tabernacle, if you'll remember, despite God's desire to be among his people, he had to keep his people at a distance for their protection. Not his, for their protection. We cannot defile God with our sin. Can't happen. It's rather that his holiness will destroy us. It's why atonement for sin is at the heart of the entire Levitical system why God wants us to dwell with him, to be clean, so that we can be with him. And as we saw, the Holy One of Israel has now come near, and instead of destroying his people, he healed them by atoning for them so that all can draw near to him. So these men rightly, like the leper from last week, they want their friend in the presence of Jesus. And Jesus sees their faith. I mean, how could he not see what they were doing? And he says, man, that is this paralytic man, your sins are forgiven you. And what is important to recognize is that it's not his friend's faith that heals him in this whole miracle. It's not their belief or their tenacity that forces Jesus to act as if, you know, if you just have faith, just have faith. God will reward you. Or if you just have faith, good things will happen. Well, there, there are plenty of examples in the Bible, and we could think of them probably just anecdotally in our own lives, of people with true faith who believed God and suffered terribly for it. No, like with the leper in the previous passage, these men, and presumably the paralytic himself, recognized the saving presence of God and moved towards Jesus. They wanted him. But unlike the leper, 
before they or the paralytic can ask for anything, though clearly it's, it's implied in their actions, Jesus forgave the man. He forgave the man. That's different than probably what they were assuming were, were gonna, was going to happen. I think it's safe to assume that these men were not primarily or perhaps even secondarily coming for forgiveness, and yet this is what Jesus gave them. With both the leper and the paralytic, Jesus addresses their fundamental problem first, their sin, their heart disposition towards God. The one man had leprosy, that one man had leprosy, and then another man was paralyzed. As bad as that is, and it's bad, is a result of living in God's good creation and has been, that has been held in bondage to sin and death. And as bad as such things are, not their fundamental issue. It's just not. Their sin, their heart disposition that kept them out of God's presence, that was the key issue. So as we mentioned last week, and I try to mention this as often as I can, the gospel addresses both our sinful condition and the effects of sin on the world. Christians tend to, when they get away from this, highlight one or the other or one at the expense of the other. It's why both the cross and the resurrection are fundamental to the gospel. We are not made whole without the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection of the body. And both, like last week, are in view here. As an aside, nowhere does Luke indicate that the man's disability was the result of his sin any more than he did with the leper last week. That's an assumption people sometimes make. You know, I have this disease or this injury, this bad thing happened to me because of the sin I've committed. And so like karma, it is clearly God's judgment on me. I had it coming. If God were to act that way towards us, frankly, no one would make it out of childhood. But that's not how he acts. Now, to be sure, it is possible to have a disease or a disability or an injury because of sinful or foolish decisions we've made, but that's not what's on view here. No, Jesus addresses the whole person, starting with the primary problem the man faces, and only then does he deal with his secondary problem. And it's telling that most people see it exactly the opposite, as in the man's paralysis is the greater issue. And to be sure, to be sure, it is a issue. It's a huge issue. It affected every aspect of his life. And his heart, ah, fix the body first. That's what really matters. That's not how Jesus sees it. Jesus sees things very differently than we tend to see them. Well, when the Pharisees and scribes sitting in judgment over Jesus heard him forgive the man, they instantly went on the offensive. Luke has them questioning, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God? And verse 22 indicates that this is what they were thinking. And before they can give voice to their thoughts, Jesus calls them out. And what we see happening in this moment is exactly what Simeon prophesied would happen in, in chapter 2, verse 34. Some, I don't know, 30 years earlier as he held the infant Jesus in the temple at his dedication. Remember those words? This is what it says. And Simeon blessed them, that is, Mary and Joseph, 
and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. You see, Jesus is appointing for the rising and fall of many in Israel. That means some will find life in him, and some will find death in him. He's the focal point. He's the dividing line. It's the difference, for example, between Peter and Judas. You know, two men who were up close and personal to Jesus, and on the surface, both claimed to be and appeared to be his disciples. Jesus would be opposed. He would divide Israel because of what he said and did. And in the process, the thoughts from many hearts that otherwise would have remained hidden behind whatever mask a person was wearing, those thoughts would be revealed. And I think that's still true today. Jesus is still the dividing line. So Jesus revealed the thoughts of his opponents before they could give voice to them, which should have stopped them in their tracks. But of course, long term, it did not. Before going forward, though, it's worth noting what his opponents accused Jesus of, namely blasphemy. That's, that's not a term we, we use on the regular, even among uh, Christians or at church. Now, there are several nuances to blasphemy, but in general, I think H.W. Byers' comment, especially on this passage, explains it well. He writes, blasphemy is a violation of the power and majesty of God. It is thus easy to see why Jesus should bring down on himself the charge when he assumes the prerogatives of God. As soon as Jesus forgives the sins of the man, he is instantly accused. Why? Because only God can forgive sins, and Jesus just did what God can only do. It's exactly why, like what happens in John 10:33, when after hearing him preach, the Jewish people, presumably Jewish leadership, they moved to stone him. They moved to stone him, which was a typical punishment for blasphemy, and Jesus asked them why they were doing this. And they say, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Well, there's the essence of it. There's the essence of it. The Jewish leadership didn't necessarily oppose Jesus because of his miracles, which, by the way, they did not deny that he did them. No, they opposed him, like we saw in Nazareth, because he put himself in the place of God. And so these Pharisees and scribes rightly understood. They rightly understood what Jesus was claiming by forgiving the man's sins. Jesus, though, as he so often does, posed a question to the Pharisees and scribes. Okay, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? So it's, it's really an impossible choice, as only God can do either of those things. Now, in a certain sense, all of us can and should forgive sin, but we can't proclaim someone clean and atone for their sin. So when someone sins against me, I can pardon or really choose to no longer hold what they've done against me. But that does not change the fact and reality of what they've done. 
Likewise, modern medicine can do tremendous good for people, but there is no such thing as a physician speaking to a paralytic or any other ailment and that person instantly recovering as if nothing had ever happened to them. Both things are miraculous in the sense that only God can do such a thing. Only God can redeem body, heart, mind, soul. Only God. And the Pharisees and scribes know that. Jesus then said, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he just leaves the phrase hanging then. Just leaves it. He doesn't finish it. He turns to the paralytic and says, I say to you, rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. It's incredible. And Jesus does at least four important things in those two short statements. First, the fundamental issue is over sin and who can atone for it. That's the issue as Jesus sees it and as the Pharisees and scribes see it too. Jesus can forgive sin because he will atone for sin. And he, as God, has the authority to do that. And to prove that, he will do something only God can do. But make no mistake, the purpose of the healing of the paralytic is to show that atonement goes through him. Second, he identifies himself in that second phrase as the son of man. Excuse me, the first phrase, as the son of man of Daniel 7 which was a not-so-veiled claim that he is the God-man that Daniel saw in his vision. So he's not guilty of blasphemy if he's, if he's God and does things only God can do. No, in that case, the shoe is on the other foot. And the Pharisees and scribes are in real danger by denying that he's God, something we will see them do when they claim he works his miracles by the power of Beelzebub. That is, the Lord of the flies, or more simply, the devil. Of course, Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man of Daniel 7 in his trial before the Sanhedrin, and they in turn accuse him of blasphemy at that point too, and they move to crucify him soon after. And again, it's a tragic and telling irony that the so-called gatekeepers of Israel, by their own reading of the law, were themselves guilty of blasphemy and killed God's son for it. Third, Jesus makes it clear that he's not merely a prophet speaking the words given to him by God, though he does that. So he's not here saying, thus says the Lord, in the same sort of way that, that I would say, this is what God says. No, he is the Lord. I say to you. It is by his word that this man is forgiven and healed. Fourth, as Arthur just points out in his commentary, he says, For Jesus, physical and spiritual brokenness are part of the same problem. They are two sides of the same coin. So Jesus treats them in the same way. As the creator come to his creation as creature, Jesus is present to free that creation from all its bondage. This is why, if you think Jesus merely cares about your soul or is merely a lifeboat to help you escape the so-called terrible world, you've misread the story of the Bible and missed how large the gospel actually is. Jesus isn't interested in redeeming a part of you. He has promised to redeem all of you. All of you. And what Jesus did for this man 
forgiving his sin, granting him access to God, which is what forgiveness of sins does, and in turn, raising him from his bed, which is a, a nod towards the resurrection, is exactly the same thing he's given to us. We have the forgiveness of sins now. We have it now. We have the down payment of the Spirit now and the gift of new hearts and minds now that you can see your sin and repent of it is all the evidence you need for this, even as we await the day when he will raise us from our sick beds, fully redeeming everything about us. So like with every healing or exorcism previous to this one, the man was instantly healed. He rose up took his bed, and went home glorifying God. So he didn't need rehab, though he couldn't use his legs. Hadn't used him in a long time on his feet. Though he was a paralytic, he could carry his own bed. Instantly healed, full of strength. And Luke tells us that amazement seized them all, which we can assume included the Pharisees and scribes, and they glorified God and were filled with awe and said, we have seen extraordinary things today. So the synagogue, uh, to put it in modern parlance, if I was in Luke's position writing this, went bananas. It went bananas with the result that, one, they just couldn't deny what they had witnessed, but two, what they witnessed moved them to worship and moved them closer to God. So often when you see videos of people responding to, say, magic tricks or extraordinary plays in sports, now people may go bananas. And maybe it's elation or sadness or amazement or fear. This is March Madness after all. But they aren't moved to worship. They aren't moved to worship. So this should tell you just how extraordinary this moment was. They could sense that God was at work before them. And of course, that's the purpose. Jesus was looking for worshipers in spirit and truth. And his goal was to restore humanity to God, not to do parlor tricks or amazing feats. But what happens when this moment fades? What happens when it's not the next Sabbath, but... 17 Sabbaths later. It's not like Jesus did these things nonstop. I've experienced several moments where it was clear that, that God was at work in important ways, and none of them were extraordinary like this. Not a one of them. But still, out of the ordinary kind of moments where you look and say, God is at work, and I see it. Just as the vast majority of life for God's people in the Old Testament and the New Testament, too, did not involve over-the-top miraculous events, so, too, our walk with Christ. You know, 99% of our walk with Christ, probably more than that, consists in the daily plotting of habits where months and years run together with you know, occasional highs and lows with a bunch of forgettable ho-hum in the middle. As I commented to a friend who's, who's really struggling right now, what I was unprepared for in adulthood, and, and I don't know how an adult would have prepared me for this, was how low-key, that is, just under the surface, like just kind of white noise in the background, how low-key sadness and regret and anger and frustration 
and disappointment seem to be always lurking in the corners of everyday life. And it's not as if there isn't happiness or good things. It's rather that there's always a tinge of loss, an unwanted memory that pops up, the realization that nothing in this life is permanent, and whether you want it or not, it's all going to change. And yet, this is exactly where God meets us. This is exactly where God meets us. Moments like this one in Luke show us who Jesus is and what he has promised us. But where he walks with us, as he did most often with his disciples, is in the everyday monotony where the blending of sadness and anger and regret bleed over into frustration and disappointment as we drive down the interstate, or we wait in line at Walmart, or we allow our pet peeves to dictate how we react to our families, or once again, as we read the impulsive and asinine comments our friends and neighbors make on social media. That's where Jesus meets us. This is where the miracle of the forgiveness of sins happens to us and is cultivated in us. That we know Jesus and love him is evidence of the first and greater miracle in this passage. He has forgiven our sins. He has given us the Holy Spirit and indwells us now, right now, making us a, a living temple. Now, the second miracle is yet to come. It's yet to come, but he will surely make good on his promise that he will raise us from the dead, and like this paralytic man, we will glorify him forever. Well, let me pray for us as we come to our close in this time. Heavenly Father, you are good, and your steadfast love endures forever. So often we miss this greater miracle because we take it as just a given and it is given to us. It is totally a gift to us. Thank you for the miracle of the forgiveness of sins and how you are working sanctification in our hearts and in our minds, even as we endure sometimes very difficult times. And Lord, perhaps that tinge of sadness or anger or whatever it may be on the, the fringes of our life serves as good evidence that there is hope yet to come, that this life is not all there is that you will indeed dry every tear, that you will make us whole, and we won't be able to help but glorify you forever. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, and it is in his name that we pray. Amen.